The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning again and welcome to P.I.'s Declassified. Well, a very hot topic in this country, the subject of guns, uh, which is our topic for today, America's gunfight. Most private investigators and security professionals support the right to carry. Private investigators and private security professionals, many of us, former law enforcement, are often at risk when we conduct investigations and protect property. Today, I have a very distinguished guest, UCLA professor Adam Winkler. Professor Winkler is the author of Gunfight, the Battle over the Right to Bear Arms in America. Very controversial book, um, I think you'll find, and I think he's found (laughs) after he published it. With this book, he provides a thoughtful analysis of America's heritage of the right to bear arms in conjunction with the laws enacted to promote gun safety. Today, however... Professor Winkler will examine the Constitution, firearms, and gun control in our current environment. He's a specialist in American constitutional law, and he instructs on such topics as professional responsibility, gun control, and firearms policy, among other other things. His work has been cited and quoted in landmark Supreme Court cases, including opinions addressing the Second Amendment. What a surprise. His commentary has been featured on media outlets such as CNN, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and many others. And he also contributes to the Daily Beast, the Huffington Post, and the author of Gunfight. And, of course, is the author of Gunfight, which I just mentioned, the battle over the right to bear arms in America. He attended the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, and then he earned his JD from New York University. And then he clerked on the U.S. Court of Appeals and received his master's degree from UCLA in political science. His first, this is like a little aside, his first case following law school was with the noted criminal defense lawyer Howard Weitzman. Howard Weitzman is the one who represented the late Michael Jackson in his child molestation case. So, um, Professor Winkler, is it true? And welcome. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, is it true that you had small acting parts as a child as well? <laughs> <laughs> I did. Uh, I grew up in uh, a Hollywood family and had the opportunity to be in some films when I was very young, but uh, uh, only one or two, and uh, I was hardly a star by, uh, by anyone's measure. Well, I think you were, weren't you the son of Robert De Niro and Lisa Minnelli? 
Yeah, I, uh, my, uh, worked, uh, I was in a movie called New York, New York, which was uh, a musical uh, right. that was not very successful, but had one major claim to fame, uh, which was that it introduced the famous song, New York, New, New York, York, that Frank Sinatra right. went on to sing and make it quite famous, and it was written for that movie. I guess maybe it had a second claim to fame, which was that uh, I was in it when I was in fourth grade. There you uh, go. And was... I played Robert De Niro's son uh, and Liza Minnelli's son, and Martin Scorsese was the director. I figured uh, working with De Niro and Scorsese says I had reached the top and there was nothing left for me to accomplish in that business, so I moved on. Yeah, the pinnacle in fourth grade, right. <laughs> and, and your father is also Adam Winkler, or um, um, Erwin Winkler, who was the producer of Rocky, Goodfellows, and Raging Bull. Is, is, that, is that right, too? That's is that right. Good? That's right, yeah. Interesting. Well, I'm delighted to have you as... Um, an expert on this very interesting issue of the Second Amendment. And can we start out with what I found really interesting, Professor Winkler, in reviewing, you, you have volumes and volumes and volumes of things you've published, but in reviewing some of your documents um, about the history of, of guns in America, because it's certainly much different than I thought it was. And I'm thinking that probably most people don't know this history. No, that's right, and that's why I wrote uh, my book, Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America, because the history is really so fascinating. Uh, you know, there's been so much heated debate about the Second Amendment, but I found in my research for gunfight that regardless of what the framers thought about the Second Am- Amendment, Americans have long enjoyed the right to bear arms. Uh, most states protect the right to bear arms for individuals in their state constitutions, and that uh, the federal constitution was amended after the Civil War, uh, in part with the intent of protecting the rights of the newly freed slaves uh, to have guns to protect themselves against the KKK and other white racists bent on returning them to slavery. At the same time, however, America has always had gun control. Sometimes we think of gun control as a modern 20th century invention. Mm-hmm. But gunfight really reveals the remarkable stories of how we've tried to balance the right to bear arms with public safety since our earliest days. Well, I thought it was really interesting. I mean, you, you've talked about the Old West and, you know, the famous Dodge City, you know, uh, getting out of Dodge, so to speak, and Tombstone and Deadwood, uh, that... They had very restrictive gun laws. Right. We all know the image of a gunslinger walking through a Wild West town, <laughs> six shooters on each hip, a rifle in each hand, and uh, ready for a duel on Main Street that's going to happen at high noon every day. But one of the remarkable things I discovered in writing my book was that our popular understanding of the Wild West couldn't be more inaccurate. The frontier towns in the West, places like Dodge City and Deadwood and Tombstone, they had the most restrictive gun laws in the nation. Everyone had guns out in the untamed wilderness, you know, to fight off animals and Indians and uh, bad guys. But when you came into town where the civilized folk lived, you had to check your guns like you'd check your coat at a, I don't know, a restaurant in Boston Mm -hmm. during the winter. Mm -hmm. Uh, When residents of Dodge City formed their municipal government, do you know the very first law they passed was? It was a gun control law. And uh, there was very little violence in these towns, which, which saw an average of less than two murders a year. Turns out there wasn't much need to get out of Dodge. Interesting, and and Tombstone is the the scene of the shootout at OK Corral. 
Uh, that's right. Uh, one of the most famous shootouts in American history, the shootout at the OK Corral, where um, you had uh, uh, the lawmen uh, represented by Wyatt Earp and his brothers on one side, and uh, a bunch of sort of outlaw cowboys who were represented by the Clantons and McClaries on the other side. Uh, and they faced off in this duel in 1881 in uh, Tombstone, Arizona, that left three people dead and made national headlines. And sometimes we think of that incident as uh, typical for the Wild West, these kinds exactly. of shootouts happening. But in the reason why it made national headlines was because it was so extraordinary, because it had mm. never happened before, that people hadn't seen anything like this before. Um, and indeed, uh, think about it, uh, today when it seems that people are dying uh, every single day because of gun violence, mm-hmm. you know, uh, three people dying probably doesn't make national news, or if it does, it's uh, replaced by some other story the next day. It's 100 years later, and we're still talking about the shootout at the OK Corral, <laughs> and I think that's partly a function of the fact that it was such an extraordinary event, that people didn't know what to do with that kind of shootout, uh, and they wanted to highlight it and, and, and discuss it, but they were actually quite rare. In towns like Tombstone, Arizona, um, the year of the shootout of the OK Corral saw more murders than they had ever had before. Um, and in most years, like I said, they averaged less than two murders a year in these towns. So uh, they were not uh, sort of these places of gun violence the way we kind of yeah. imagine them. Well, and we're left, I mean, we're really left with the legacy of Tombstone that we all believe as a nation that that was that was the standard of the old west i mean obviously we, we've seen the westerns right we we know what's going on that's right but you know what it really it really was not what the wild west was like and in fact people who went to at the time contemporary travelers accounts of people who who went as tourists to the wild west they came back and always talked about how there was so much decorum and that they didn't see any huh. of that violence that uh, people had uh, been told about uh, for all those years it's important to remember that what the shootout at the OK Corral, too, was also a story about gun control. The reason why uh, the confrontation happened that day was because Tombstone had a law that barred people uh, from carrying their guns around town. And those outlaw cowboys were walking around town, and they refused to turn in their guns because they were having a feud with the marshals, the Earps at all. Uh, And they refused to turn in their guns. And what the Earps were doing that day was enforcing the town's gun control law. So the shootout of the OK Corral is often taken to be a story about uh, guns in America and how guns have shaped American identity. But it should also be a story about how gun control has always been part of the story uh, of American uh, law and American guns, too. Interesting. And you said the first law in Dodge City was a gun control law. You have a a photo in your book in Gunfight of of Dodge City, Kansas, where there's a sign that actually says that carrying of firearms is strictly prohibited. That's right. It's a photo taken uh, in the heart of the Wild West period, which was roughly from you know 1870 to 1890, uh, the Wild West period. And uh, when you came into uh, Dodge City, the first thing you saw was a big sign that said the carrying of firearms strictly prohibited. And these signs were pretty commonplace in Wild West towns because when you came into town, you probably had a gun on you. You were coming from the from the wild wilderness, yeah. and where yeah. there was no police and no law, 
and you needed to protect yourself. Uh, and when you came in town, you checked your guns. You either left them with the marshal, uh, and you'd get a little token, like uh, uh, like you get when you check like that code check. in that Boston restaurant, and you could bring <laughs> that token back and get your gun, uh, or you'd have to leave your guns at the stables. Um, I even found in doing my research, I found uh, a, a photograph of a firearm that uh, Wyatt Earp himself left in Juneau, Alaska, when he went to visit there, and he huh. had to check his gun when he went, when he arrived. Um, uh, and uh, for some reasons, unbeknownst, he had to leave Juneau uh, very early, very early in the morning before the marshal's office opened, and his gun still sits there waiting for him in Juneau. So, if you can find that little claim ticket, you might be able to get Wyatt Earp's gun. That is really interesting, huh? Okay, um, so. So what, so what changed? There was well, a period of time that th- everything changed. Well, uh, uh, things have changed a lot. You know, in some ways, towns like Tombstone, Arizona, today have looser gun laws than they had back in the 1880s. In the 1880s, you were specifically prohibited from carrying a gun around town, either openly or concealed. Uh, and today in, uh, in Tombstone, Arizona, the law is you can carry a gun uh, openly or concealed without a permit. Uh, even so, uh, the law in some ways is, is a little bit looser. Obviously, gun laws are more restrictive in other ways, um, but uh, but it is a complicated story, and it gets to the question: of sort of why is our image of the Wild West so wrong? And I think mm-hmm. part of that story is that uh, the, our image is so wrong for largely the same reasons that the frontier towns had gun control, and that's economic development. The residents mm-hmm. of Tombstone enacted gun control laws because they wanted what most small towns want. They wanted to grow and to prosper. And what businessman was going to come into their town and open up a store in Tombstone if every time he tried to deposit the week's earnings in the bank, he was going to be robbed? Uh, so small towns on the edge sense. of civilization wanted to become big cities filled with civilized people. And then once the frontier was closed, that same goal of economic development led boosters to sort of romanticize their supposedly violent past to attract tourists right. and the businesses that serve them. That's why if you go to Tombstone today, you can see a reenactment of the shootout at the OK Corral right. several times a day. If you go, don't exactly forget to buy a right. souvenir. Yeah, right. Okay. We need, we need to take a break, Professor Winkler. We'll be just right back after commercial break. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. 
for a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Adam Winkler is a professor at UCLA and an expert in constitutional law. We're talking about guns in America, and Professor Winkler, you were just you were talking off the break about how there's there's always been a balance between um, gun control and the right to carry, and you think that that is absolutely the right position to be in. Well, I think that the, the balance I think I was referring to was a balance between the right to bear arms, the right to have guns for personal protection, and uh, the public safety interests that justify gun control laws. You know, the Founding Fathers wrote the Second Amendment to protect the right of individuals to have guns for uh, personal protection and other reasons, uh, uh, including defense uh, uh, against uh, tyranny. Um, but at the same time, the framers of the Constitution also supported gun control laws. The Founding Fathers had gun control laws that... I think many of the leaders of the NRA today uh, would never accept, even though mm-hmm. the NRA often styles itself as sort of the protectors of the Founding Fathers' vision of the Second Amendment. The Founding Fathers understood that uh, the militia, that is to say the able-bodied uh, free white citizenry, it was white at the time, it was racist, unfortunately, um, but that the militia had to be well-regulated, uh, mm-hmm. uh, had to be trained, had to be disciplined, uh, had to know what to do with firearms, uh, and uh, they had uh, restrictions on who could own guns, uh, had put special owners, onerous burdens on gun owners, and even had early, an early form of gun registration. So uh, the founding fathers understood gun control and understood that you had to balance gun rights with public safety. Well, and initially, I mean, wasn't the interpretation of the Second Amendment originally meant to be a collective right to bear arms for the militia, not necessarily an individual right? Well, I don't think so, but there's been a lot of debate about that over the years, and I think it's very hard to come up with, um, you know, 100% 100% persuasive, uh, incontrovertible evidence of either view. Um, indeed, the Second Amendment refers quite explicitly to the well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, thus explaining one of the reasons why we do have the right to bear arms. But the Founding Fathers had a little bit different view of the militia than we have. Uh, we might think of the militia like as a National Guard or whatnot, but the Founding mm-hmm. Fathers thought that we shouldn't have a standing army. We shouldn't have people who permanently have guns to fight wars. They thought that the common citizenry, when called to serve, would 
Sur would become part of the militia. So they had laws, for instance, uh, passed in the 1790s declaring that every single free citizen between um, uh, 18 and 45 uh, was uh, automatically a member of the militia. And as hmm. a result, had to outfit themselves with a firearm uh, and proper ammunition so that uh, in the event of an attack, they would be prepared uh, uh, to serve in the militia. So it had some collective aspects to it, but I also think that when we see the language, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, that sounds like an individual right. In fact, in the First Amendment, when the Founding Fathers wrote the right of the peace, people to peaceably assemble and to petition government for redress of its grievances, we interpret that to be an individual right. In the Fourth Amendment, written at the same time as the Second and the First Amendment, uh, the Constitution refers to the right of the people uh, to be secure in their papers, houses, uh, effects, etc., from unreasonable searches and seizures. Mm-hmm. That's obviously an individual right, too. So I think it's very difficult to read the Second Amendment not to have an individual right when it uses the same language as other amendments adopted at the exact same time and written by the same people right. are clearly intended to protect an individual right. That's what right. the Bill of Rights is. It's a bunch of individual rights. It's not necessarily a right of a state to have. Interesting. But, but either way, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that ever since then, Americans have enjoyed the right to bear arms. There have been efforts occasionally to restrict particular firearms. Washington, D.C. and Chicago banned handguns notoriously and effectively. Um, uh, but other than that, I mean, the truth is, is Americans have uh, still enjoy the right to bear arms. It's uh, uh, in every state in the Union, you can go out and you can buy a firearm for personal protection uh, with very, very few hurdles to overcome. And, of course, um, I I guess the 1920s Uniform Firearms Act and then the the amendment later on, maybe 1934, kind of changed the landscape somewhat? Well, that's right. I mean, we had, uh, it's very interesting, one of the things I found in my research is that we think of the NRA, the National Rifle Association, as a diehard opponent of gun control. But that wasn't always the case. And, indeed, when you go back through most of the NRA's history, before the 1970s, we find that the NRA was often a leader in the fight for gun control. And in the 1920s and 30s, for instance, the president of the NRA um, helped write uh, gun control laws, model gun control laws, banning people from carrying guns in public unless they had a license and restricting that license to people who had good moral character or proper reason to carry firearms. Um, He helped write those model laws that were passed in almost every state in the Union. In fact, in 1934, when Congress was debating passing uh, the first federal gun control law, uh, the NRA's president was asked to testify before Congress and was asked specifically the question, does this federal law that restricts guns, um, is this a violation of the Second Amendment? And he said that very interestingly. He said, I have never given it any study from that point of view. Because to the NRA in the 1920s and 30s, the Second Amendment wasn't about uh, protecting individuals' right to have guns. Um, and that view really arose much, much later in the NRA's history. Interesting. And, and then uh, there was all, all kinds of things that were happening in the 60s and the 70s with the Black Panthers and um, I guess then Governor Ronald Reagan. 
Well, that's um, right. Um, in Gunfight, I tell the story of what I think is one of the most amazing spectacles in the history of America's gun debate. And that was a day in May 1967 when 30 members of the Black Panthers, who were here before then unknown nationally, people did not know who the Black Panthers were, they marched right into the California State Capitol building, openly carrying loaded rifles, pistols, and shotguns. And they weren't there to commit violence. They were there to protest a proposed gun control law. Conservatives in California, uh, supported by Ronald Reagan, the governor at the time, sought to disarm the Panthers. Uh, and, uh, in fact, the late 1960s saw a number of gun control laws enacted to restrict access to guns uh, by radicals, often black radicals. Um, and somewhat ironically, uh, it was these laws that fueled the rise of the modern gun rights movement, uh, a movement that's famous for being white, rural, and politically conservative, even mm -hmm. though it was in part a reaction to laws that were designed to stop gun ownership or gun possession, or make it more difficult at least, by uh, racial minorities in an urban setting uh, who were thought to be politically uh, on the left. So mm -hmm. uh, that's just one of the, the ironies of it, uh, and how the Black Panthers launched the modern gun rights movement. And not much has changed, <laughs> actually. Well, things haven't changed that much, but, um, but you know, the NRA, the NRA really changed the most. Um, uh, like I said, the NRA used to support gun control laws, uh, uh, and indeed in the 1960s, uh, the NRA uh, supported the Gun Control Act of 1968, uh, a law that many people in the NRA now fight against. And all that really changed in 1977. That was the year where the NRA underwent a radical shift. Um, that year at the annual meeting of the membership, there was uh, basically a coup led by some hardliners who thought that the NRA leadership was too moderate and too compromising. Uh, and these hardliners staged a coordinated, well-planned-out attack on the leadership at this meeting. Uh, and the leadership was completely unprepared for it. And by the time the sun rose the next day, the entire leadership of the NRA had hmm. been ousted and replaced by Harlan Carter, uh, and uh, a group of hardliners who had a very different view of the NRA and thought that guns weren't about hunting uh, and shooting ducks. They were about self-protection and shooting criminals who might attack you. Uh, and uh, they really set their sights on fighting gun control laws at uh, every turn. And, of course, that was a very fateful day for the NRA and, indeed, for America. And that position still exists today. Is it? Yeah. Is Absolutely. It, the NRA oh. remains, obviously, the powerhouse in the gun rights field in the area of guns. Um, and the NRA is generally pretty uncompromising. It's not to say they haven't made compromises ever, uh, but they're definitely on the extreme end of the spectrum um, in the sense that they've really um, fought against um, what we might think of as quote-unquote common-sense gun laws. Uh, and in part, the NRA is really fueled, uh, that idea is fueled for the NRA by the idea that any gun control law that we pass will lead us on a slippery slope towards disarmament. If you support mm -hmm. this law, that means that there'll be another law and another law and another law, and eventually the right to bear arms will be a, a nothing but a distant memory. Um, and one of the things I talk about in my book, Gunfight, is how if we want to sort of come to a better place in the gun debate, we need to uh, eliminate, we need to move away from the extremes of both sides. 
the mm-hmm. NRA that promotes an unreasonable view of the right to bear arms where we can't have any gun control laws lest it lead to total disarmament, and also the extremism of the gun control advocates because so many gun control advocates uh, want have an unrealistic belief that we can get rid of America's guns. There's 320 million of them already, and, there's not, wow. and they're not really going to go anywhere no matter what laws we pass. Uh, and, uh, and in the absence of that, support predictably ineffective laws that really won't change anything, like I think, for instance, uh, the current debate about assault weapons, which are used very rarely in crime, uh, and are probably uh, not worth, in terms of public safety, uh, all of the uh, all of the hassle that's gone into trying to pass laws to uh, uh, restrict them. Well, there's nothing that <laughs> creates a debate more than talking about gun control. I saw a, a quote by you, um, Professor Winkler, that that you said guns are at the heart of America's culture divide. And you were saying that not race or, or religion or anything else was more devi- divisive than um, talking about gun control. Well, in some ways, we've moved past some of our worst um, uh, controversies over race. Not to say that race is irrelevant in America at all. I don't think so. But if you put ourselves back into the you know, late 1950s when uh, African-American children were first trying to integrate Little Rock, uh, Arkansas schools, the first public high school to accept African Americans in the wake of Brown versus Board of Education. You know, there were protests on the street and people were yelling at mm-hmm. each other and mm-hmm. the African Americans who showed up were spit upon or spat upon and, um, uh, and they confronted violence. Uh, and if we were standing on that street corner watching that scene, we would say, you know what, uh, we'll, we'll never get beyond this kind of right, issue right. on race. And while there's still things that we need to do with regards to race, uh, we've obviously come uh, just very, very far uh, from since then. And there are many issues that divide Americans, but, you know, politically, the gun issue is the one that motivates voters more than many others. Um, uh, look how voters who were supportive of, uh, or who who were not supportive of gun, gun control, responded in last year to the proposal to adopt some new federal laws. Yeah. Some federal laws that, uh, you know, some of them were not particularly far-reaching, like uh, requiring background checks uh, for all gun purchasers. Most gun advocates even believe that we should have background checks. But nonetheless, there was really uh, that push came alive, and, and really nothing was accomplished because of it. We need to take a break to, again. Uh, don't go away. Professor Adam Winkler will be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. 
NCISS, and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm back with my guest, Professor Adam Winkler, uh, talking about America's gunfight. Um, so the two big landmark decisions in the past few years have been the Heller case, District Columbia versus Heller in Washington, D.C., and the McDonald case in Chicago. So would, can you break those down for us and, and the impact of what those two cases uh, addressed? Sure. Um, uh, In 2008, uh, the Supreme Court held in a case called District of Columbia against Heller uh, that the Second Amendment clearly protected a right of individuals to have guns for personal protection and struck down what was then uh, the most onerous gun control law in the nation. And that was Washington, D.C.'s law, which banned anyone from owning a handgun. Uh, at least most civilians from owning a handgun. Um, you could own a long gun in Washington, D.C., a shotgun or a rifle, but mm-hmm. actually you weren't allowed to use it for self-defense. And, in fact, there had been a court ruling that said the only, uh, under the law, the only lawful purposes for the use of a shotgun or a rifle uh, was for recreational purposes, like hunting or target shooting. Uh, mm-hmm. And the court said that if someone were coming through your window to try to attack you and you shot them, uh, that would not be a recreational use of the firearm, right? You're not playing <laughs> games there. So we had this odd law where you basically could not use a gun for self-protection in Washington, D.C. And the Supreme Court struck that law down, saying it violated the Second Amendment. And Heller was an important case because although the Supreme Court had mentioned the Second Amendment in passing in cases previously, uh, the court hadn't really issued an authoritative ruling on what the meaning of that of the Second Amendment was, and there was a lot of debate. Was it a collective right, as we talked about earlier, a right just of a state to protect itself against federal interference with its militia, or was it a right of individuals to have guns for lawful purposes like self-defense? And the Supreme Court came down strongly in the side of individuals. That case was followed by a case called... Um, uh, uh, the city, McDonald versus City of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Chicago, like Washington, D.C., also had a ban on handguns. But because Washington, D.C. was a federal enclave uh, run by the federal government in some ways, at least overseen by the federal government, um, uh, the ruling in Heller was not directly applicable to states and cities under the Constitution, just for some quirks of constitutional doctrine. It was not applicable to the states. Uh, and so the city, McDonald versus City of Chicago was the case where the Supreme Court in 2010 said that the, the ruling in Heller also applies to the state and local governments, and Chicago ha- can't ban handguns either. And so Chicago's ban on handguns was overturned. Uh, and uh, these two cases 
are, are clearly uh, the most important cases in the history of the Second Amendment because the court has made clear that there is a right to bear arms for individuals for personal protection um, and that that right applies both against the federal government and the federal laws and now against state and local laws as well. Still plenty of open questions about the scope of the right to bear arms. Mm-hmm. Does it include the right to have guns in public, for instance, the right to carry guns? Uh, that the court did not clarify in those opinions. So there's still plenty of uh, litigation going on. And indeed, since those two cases, rather than settling the issue, in some ways they've uh, stirred it up. Since 2008, there's been over 400 federal court um, cases challenging gun control laws. Um, And surprisingly, perhaps, most of those laws have survived. Interesting. But but it's probably frustrating from... um, from your viewpoint and probably from lawmakers' viewpoint, that there's no clear standard. That's right. One of the problems that the court's decision in Heller had and was not, not solved in the McDonald case is that the court did not provide a clear standard for how you judge which laws are constitutional and which laws are unconstitutional under the Second Amendment. You know, it's one thing to say that the Second Amendment protects the right of individuals to have guns. But none of our constitutional rights are absolute. The Supreme Court has said that uh, for over 200 years. For instance, you have a right to free speech, but in a probably overused cliche, you don't have the right to shout <laughs> fire in a crowded theater. Exactly. And you don't have the right to perjure yourself or to commit fraud on someone and say, well, I'm just exercising the freedom of speech. No, uh, the court says no rights are absolute, and when the government has especially strong reasons, it can usually overcome those rights such as the, the, the government's reason in protecting public safety in a movie theater that's crowded. Um, and the same thing with the Second Amendment. You have a right to bear arms, um, but uh, the real question is what laws infringe that right and what laws are complementary with that right or don't infringe that right. And the court didn't really make clear how, how lower courts are to ter- determine that issue. And so courts have sort of had to figure it out on their own. I think it probably will be a few more years before the Second Amendment comes to the Supreme Court again. And one of the big questions will be, um, what standard should lower courts use to judge whether a law is constitutional or not? Right. Well, and I, I thought it was interesting that the, the court clearly said the right is not unlimited. In fact, there's a quote, nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on the longstanding prohibitions on the possession of, possession of firearms by felons and the mel- mentally ill or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings, which are prohibited now, or law, that was my side comment, or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. So it's, it's clearly limited, and, and I don't think we as a American public realize that it's, it's limited. We don't think about that. We don't think about that you can't carry a firearm into a government building, for example. Well, uh, that may be because you don't carry a firearm. (laughs) I think if you carry a firearm, you know pretty well you're not going to carry that gun into a federal building. Although there are laws that do make it difficult for people to know where they can carry guns and where they can't carry guns. Um, And so uh, I don't mean to minimize that idea. But but that's absolutely right. And I think the biggest question for the Supreme Court will be in the next round, does the right extend outside of the home? Both the Heller case and the McDonald case only dealt with the question of whether individuals could have a handgun in their home for self-defense. 
Yeah. And the court has generally uh, given more protection to rights exercised in the home than they have rights exercised in public. So you have a right, for instance, to uh, intimate relations with uh, uh, someone who you love. Um, uh, but you don't have the right to do that in the public street, right? Correct. Um, you have the right Good to free example. speech. But that doesn't mean you have the right to exercise that speech anywhere and anywhere you might want to speak. And the same thing with guns. Uh, it's probably the case that the right to bear arms is more restricted outside of the home than it is inside the home. But the court still has yet to make clear whether you do have a right to have guns in public. And if you do, what kind of permitting or licensing can states have um, to restrict who exercises that right? Well, and what do you do about that? I mean... Um... I'm sure on everybody's mind is all the school shootings, and we've just had, what is it, four this year, or three this year, just since uh, 2014, and I I was just looking on a website, um, wow, since 1992, prior to these three this year, there were 387 um, school shootings, and it it's pretty astonishing when you look at that. Just in um, 2009, there were 37. Right. And that is astonishing uh, in some ways. Um, you know, we think of, you know, uh, schools and educational institutions as places where vulnerable people are, and we, we don't expect there to be violence. But I do think that one thing we do know about violence, uh, including murder, uh, is that uh, it is, uh, it skews very strongly towards young and immature people, right? It's teenagers yeah. uh, who, uh, who often commit uh, the most uh, heinous crimes. Uh, not always, but often very young people. Uh, and I think that what happens is, is schools become a decent place for someone to carry out their sick, murderous fantasies, um, in part because those are the institutions that those people are familiar with, because they skew young as well. Um, you know, if the murderer's young, uh, he might like, might go to a school uh, and try to take it out on someone they know. So, for instance, there was a school shooting, uh, I think, just last week where a kid went to school and purposefully, uh, with a shotgun, shot one of his classmates. And it was right. clear that uh, that was what, uh, this was an immature person um, coming into a school to try to take out their revenge fantasies on a particular person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as you get older, when you get to my advanced age and that gray hair starts coming <laughs> in, maybe, maybe by then you realize that, you know, shooting someone's not a particularly good solution for your problems. Um, <laughs> but I think that young and Im- people who are young and immature are going to be young and immature and make those kinds of mistakes. One thing I do think we need to do is... Um, uh, I understand our focus on sort of mass shootings that happen at schools, and Newtown obviously focused uh, the nation's attention on this problem, Mm -hmm. as it should have. Um, But sometimes we think that the answer should be protecting schools, um, when I think that's probably not the right answer. Probably the right answer is, um, or the right goal should be, how can we reduce the daily death toll from gun violence in the country? Every day, somewhere near 30 people die from gun violence, um, can we lower that number to 25, uh, to 24, to 23? Can we slowly reduce that number? And the way we've slowly reduced drunk driving accidents, you're never going to eliminate drunk driving, and you're never going to eliminate mass murder. All you can do is try to reduce the daily incidence of these kinds of occurrences uh, through harsh penalties, uh, various kinds of innovative police strategies, uh, and other mechanisms to try to keep guns out of hands uh, that are um, out of the hands of people who are uh, dangerously mentally ill uh, or who have felonious intent. And how do you do that? 
Well, that's very difficult. And I don't think that you can ever completely protect us from those people getting their hands on guns. Not as long as you have 320 million guns circulating mm-hmm. in America. You know, mm-hmm. if there's so many guns, it's always going to be difficult to keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. I do think a step forward would be having better background checks. Our mm-hmm. current background check system is very incomplete. It only requires you to go through a background check if you buy a gun from a federally licensed dealer. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to buy a gun from a federally licensed dealer. In fact, if you and I were to meet up, you could sell me your gun. Right. Um, I could meet you. Uh, for, I could find someone in a classified ad who's selling a gun. Or uh, perhaps most uh, uh, most high profile these days is you can go to a gun show. And while gun shows operate under the same rules as everywhere else, so if you're a licensed dealer operating at a gun show, you have to do a background check. Gun shows are places where a lot of people who aren't licensed dealers go to sell their guns and can sell those guns without doing a background check. I think there's just no reason why uh, anyone should be able to buy a gun uh, from someone they don't know without going through a background check. Uh, That just seems crazy to me. We all agree, even the NRA, that the felons and the mentally ill should not have access to guns. Well, the only way you're going to make it harder for them to have guns is by having things like background checks that say, hey, if you've got a felony conviction, you can't buy a gun. And so uh, I'd like to see us beef up our background check system. Uh, That was part of uh, President Obama's proposals last year. It did not go very far, um, uh, in part because people were concerned that it was going to create a gun registry. Mm -hmm. And so it's important for, um, uh, for gun owners to know that background checks do not lead to a national registry, and that the proposals if we're going to have a national background check system that covers all backgrounds, all gun sales, we must do it in a way that does not pose the threat of a registry. And, of course, that doesn't even address this, n- the numbers of guns that are sold on the streets every day that uh, are just handed off from person to person. Right. And there's nothing you can do to stop that. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's, uh, there's a lot of guns in America... There's illegal purchases of drugs. Uh, when we outlawed alcohol, there were illegal purchases of alcohol. There's still illegal purchases of tobacco off of Indian right. reservations and things. Right. You can't really prevent people from engaging in illegal behavior. Um, all you can do is adopt laws that uh, make it harder for them to engage in illegal behavior, and then when they do engage in illegal behavior, uh, punish them in a harsh way that adds more deterrence uh, to those in the future who might think of committing the same crime. Okay, we need to take another break, Professor Winkler. More to come with Guns in America with UCLA Professor Adam Winkler. Stay tuned. We'll be right News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. 
for a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Professor Winkler and I are back. Um, Professor Winkler, you were talking about background checks. What is included in a background check? I think that's an, another controversial area, and not everybody's clear on what's involved. Well, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the background checks are only done if you're purchasing a gun from a federally licensed dealer, at least under federal law. Some states, like California, have somewhat more restrictive laws. Um, but generally, uh, only federally licensed dealers have to conduct a background check. What does the background check entail? Basically, you fill out a form, uh, a very short form, and uh, the dealer then takes that information uh, and runs it through a computerized database uh, and basically puts your name in there to see if you, have, uh, if you are listed as a prohibited purchaser under federal law. Under federal law, you are a prohibited purchaser if you have been convicted of a felony, uh, if you have um, uh, been adjudicated to be mentally ill by a court of some sort, uh, if you have been dishonorably discharged from the military, uh, and if you are currently under uh, operating under um, a restraining order in a domestic violence case, and a couple of other uh, little additions. But that's basically the idea. If you've got a felony conviction, if you've been adjudicated to be mentally ill, uh, you will not be able to purchase that firearm, uh, and you will be turned away under the background check system. Um, the system is not perfect, in part because states haven't been super aggressive in providing the necessary information to the federal government's database. Mm -hmm. So most adjudications of mental illness, in fact, almost all adjudications of mental illness, happen at the state and local level. So those are records that the state and local governments have, not the federal government. So the federal government's dependent on the states to provide that information. And right now, currently, uh, I think there's only, I think the last time I saw this number, it was only about a dozen states in the whole country that were providing comprehensive information um, uh, to the federal government uh, about mental health adjudications. So uh, you have a background check system that is based on incomplete information, um, mm-hmm. and even if it were more complete, uh, it's not done for every per- gun purchase. Uh, and uh, some people might even say that the basic, the basic elements of a prohibited purchaser, such as adjudication of mental illness, are not good enough. Someone like uh, the Newtown shooter had never right. been adjudicated mentally ill. Uh, the shooter in the Aurora movie theater had never been adjudicated to be mentally ill. And right. as a result, they were not prohibited purchasers, although obviously an ideal gun regime would pre- prevent them 
from getting their hands on guns. But how do you address that, Professor, with the HIPAA laws and the prohibition against getting medical and psychological records? Well, the HIPAA laws aren't the biggest hurdle to that. So HIPAA laws provide for privacy of personal medical information. Um, But Congress could, just as Congress passed the HIPAA law, Congress could pass a law creating an exception to the HIPAA law, saying uh, that this information would not be protected under uh, those federal privacy protections. However, that's not to say that it's an easy problem to resolve overall. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, If you're not going to rely on adjudications of mental health, and we recognize that if you wait till someone's adjudicated to be mentally ill, that may be too late in a lot of cases. Um, but if you so if you move away from the idea of adjudication, what's your standard for who is too mentally right. ill to have their hands on a firearm? Is exactly. it someone who's just gone to seek counseling for any problem? Well, that seems way too broad, and you don't want to discourage someone who's having marital difficulties from going and seeking counseling and trying to get some help, or someone who's dealing with depression. You don't want to discourage them from going and getting that kind of help. So it's very difficult to imagine what the standard would be for mental health if it's not adjudication of mental health. That's one of the big challenges to gun control advocates uh, who feel that the law currently is not strong enough is, well, okay, if you're going to make it stronger, how do you do it in a way that actually makes sense that's efficient, that will be manageable. And I think with some of the issues like with regards to mental illness, we still don't have that answer. And if somebody is um, held on a 72-hour hold, um, a psychotic break or something like that, does that plug into the the, uh, adjudicated mental illness part? Well, that's indeed, that's uh, someone uh, who is, uh, uh, you're only held if you've been adjudicated to be a risk to yourself and to others. Okay. So, yeah, okay. that would trigger uh, the uh, uh, the prohibited purchaser uh, feature of the federal laws, and you would be pre- prevented from purchasing a firearm. And when, when somebody fills out this form at a gun dealer uh, or a gun store, what kind of identification do they have to provide? Uh, just basic information, their name and, their, uh, and where they live, um, uh, and just some basic information to run through uh, the system. You know, it's not an extensive, like, uh, it's not like the kind of background check you might uh, expect one to go through before one is nominated for uh, a federal position in the diplomatic corps or someplace <laughs> dealing with top, top security clearances, right? You're, n- you're not talking about that kind of background check. It's just very basic information because all they want to do is see if it triggers something in the database uh, that suggests that this person is a fe- has been convicted of a felony or has a mental health adjudication. Do they have to provide a government ID verifying who they are? Uh, I don't believe they have to provide uh, a government ID uh, under the federal law, um, but uh, in general, you end up providing a federal uh, ID or uh, some kind of government ID um, uh, to provide uh, assurances of who you are. Okay. And so what happened? Do they, do they do fingerprints there? No, they do not do fingerprints. There are no fingerprints. It's not, uh, again, it's not like one of those security clearances. You do not have to give fingerprints to get, get a firearm. So, essentially, you could alter your identity and get a firearm because nothing can verify that you're who you say you are. Well, that's right. The same way that people can, who are underage can get a fake ID, and if it's sufficiently realistic to convince someone, uh, you can get in a bar and drink. 
Uh, it's not lawful, but it can be done. And it's possible that someone who has uh, got a felony conviction or something and wants to purchase a firearm will create a fake ID. Uh, you know, that's a, a risky play because uh, the gun store owner is probably, if he catches you, um, unlike the bar, which will just kick you out, uh, the gun store owner might very well report you to federal authorities. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, that could bring a significant um, uh, criminal prosecution upon you. Instead, what we find is uh, probably more frequently someone who's a prohibited purchaser instead brings their girlfriend or their boyfriend to the gun store, uh, has the girlfriend or the boyfriend be the one who actually purchases the firearm and who undertakes the background check. And then when they walk out of the store, the prohibited person gets the hands on the gun and it's their gun from then, uh, from then on. And there's nothing that the law does. I mean, the law says that's illegal, um, but there's nothing that the law does in practice that really makes it difficult for that to happen. Uh, and mm-hmm. gun store owners will often talk about uh, their frustration. Now, you know, most gun owners, um, gun store owners, are law-abiding people who want mm-hmm. only to sell to law-abiding people and don't want to sell to criminals. Um, there may be a few bad apples out there. I don't mean to suggest that they're you know all lily white, but the vast majority of gun store owners don't want to sell guns illegally, and they find themselves in tough times when mm-hmm. uh, when someone comes in and you don't really know who's getting the gun when there's a couple. It seems like the guy is the one who knows the most about the guns, and the girl doesn't know anything about it, but she's the one purchasing it. Right. You know, right. The person, the, the gun store owner, just say, oh. I don't think this is really a gun for her. Yeah. And she yeah. says, no, it is a gun for me. And yeah. what do you do? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it just, it just seems to me that a background check like the one we're talking about is fairly worthless. Really? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I don't know what know, it accomplishes. It, it, it could be strengthened, but I wouldn't say uh, it's worthless. Um, it, you know, uh, it, we've had, uh, under the background check system since it was instituted in 1994, uh, we've had, uh, or 1990, late 1993, uh, it, we've had uh, well over a million people who've tried to purchase guns turned away by gun stores. Oh, that's, um, that's good. Yeah, no, I imagine some of those people managed to figure out how to get their hands on guns some other way. But what we've at least done is closed off the easiest way, uh, where you go into a gun show and you have the best prices and the best selection uh, and taken that off the table and forced someone who does have uh, some criminal record uh, to go back into the criminal uh, channels that they may know or uh, that they may not know and find a way to get their hands uh, on a gun uh, in some other method. Uh, and, and, you know, as you, if you increase the costs of any social activity, uh, at least some people will be less likely to do it. And so I think that's the idea. Okay. Well, Professor Winkler, we are at absolutely at the end of our hour. I think we may even be a little over time. Thank you so much. This has been a delightful conversation. I appreciate you taking the time for being here today. And uh, for the rest of you, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. And thank you, Professor Winkler, for joining us today. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.
Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. It's staff and management.